Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When I think about our campaigns for justice, very often the poster child and the animating figure for our resistance movements are, will be middle, not middle class, but they'll be, they'll be black, cisgendered, heterosexual men. It's very easy to organize around Mike Brown or Tamir Rice or, uh, or Trayvon Martin, but it's much harder uh, to organize around, just for example, Amiel Hall, a black trans woman who was killed in 2014. When we talk about all black lives mattering, it means that we have to be committed Um, to affirming every dimension of our community. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to activist and author Mark Lamont Hill about his new book, We Still Here, Pandemic Policing, Protest and Possibility a remarkable volume about the last six months of our lives. In a time of disease and struggle, we need this kind of book that essentially attempts to understand what we've been through and where we're going. I have already read it. It's fantastic. I'm so excited to talk to him. Mark Lamont Hill is also the biggest Philadelphia 76ers fan on God's green earth, and I may have a couple questions for him about that as well. Also, I've got some choice words about the NFL's Rooney Rule and some interesting tweaks that have gone down with that. Got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, let's talk to MLH, Mark Lamont Hill. I'll just jump right in. Um, We still hear pandemic, policing, protest, and possibility. Um, I read it. I think it's an indispensable volume. Uh, what, What compelled you to write this? You know, uh, I, I think I, I want to. I'm always wary of, of of attempts to make sense of a moment in the moment. You know, I think we need some distance from it. We need to critically analyze things. Um, and so there was a part of me that was like, you know, whatever's going on in in the world right now, you know, we need time to process it. But then there's this other way that you know, in the midst of you know. A pandemic and you know watching these these extraordinary protests taking place all around the world 
um, but certainly in the United States, I wanted to help give people who are organizing and thinking and teaching about these issues um, somewhat of a guide, um, somewhat of a framework for how to make sense of everything that's happening. Um, the other piece of it is I want to make sense of it. You know, I, I think for me, it, it's really important um, to process ideas. And for me, sometimes I can write and talk through ideas. Uh, my dear colleague and friend, Frank Barat, uh, who was in Belgium at the time, he's French, but he was in Belgium at the time, uh, was engaging me in conversation about what was going on in the United States. And sometimes when an outsider comes and says, hey, what's going on? Like, how do you explain Trump? How do you explain the management of the pandemic? Like, what's going on in the streets? What's up with this George Floyd thing? Having an outsider kind of force you to um, analyze your own context in a different way um, is also helpful. And so between the dialogues with Frank Barat um, and my own attempts to make sense of everything um, and my desire to, to, to offer some kind of an analysis for the people, um, it, it, it all came together. Mm. One, one of the things you write about or one of your frameworks for what you talk about is what you call Corona capitalism. I was hoping maybe you could explain that and then I got some questions for you about the book and how that fits into your framework. So, so what, what is Corona capitalism? You know, Corona capitalism, you know, again, I, I was trying to make sense of it and I was trying to also offer critical pushback to some of the analysis that was that was taking place uh, in, in, in the early parts of 2020 or the first quarter of 2020. You know, a lot of people, when crises happen, they try to kind of universalize the crisis. Like, oh, we're all in this together. You know, we're all equally vulnerable. We're all equally desperate. Um, and they also try to act as if um, the chips just kind of fell where they where they may, right? Like, like however this shook out was just coincidence. And what I want to do was one, let people know that what we're experiencing, what what we're seeing on the ground, may have happened unexpectedly, but the conditions that allowed the rich to exploit this crisis um, is not coincidental. It's not random. Um, it's not arbitrary, but it's part of a broader sy symptom and 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 system. Uh, of late capitalism that allows this to happen. It's about how we exploit the vulnerable. It's about uh, the disposability of those who we can't e extract any, any more va labor value or use value from. Mm -hmm. um, it's about, um, as Naomi Klein talked about, the kind of uh, disaster capitalism, right? Where, where in the moment of extraordinary social crisis, whether it's a national disaster, whether it's an, an act of terrorism, whatever the thing might be, uh, while we're in a state of shock and dismay and fear, the, the powerful, the wealthy, swoop in and, and, and shift policy and engage in the type of economic arrangement that makes the rich richer. Um, and so all of that is happening, you know, and, and that's how, you know, Jeff Bezos' personal wealth can, can, can go up by tens of billions of dollars during Corona, uh, but also uh, Amazon can. It's how everyday workers are forced to be on the front lines of a Tyson Foods factory um, making making chicken so that the national economy looks stable, uh, risking their lives, some dying from from coronavirus. Uh, companies are getting rich and the vulnerable are getting exploited, and and many are dying. That's that's all because of Corona capitalism. So Corona capitalism doesn't begin with the coronavirus, but it's my way of framing the type uh, of economic arrangements that that happen. The the type of disaster capitalism, the flavor of it that we're dealing with indeed, right now. Indeed, indeed. Now. This past summer, 2020, we saw, and I feel like this is already sort of getting thrown in the memory hole, 
the largest demonstrations in the history of the United States and the most widespread demonstrations taking place in all 50 states in the history of this country. Did people demonstrate in your mind in spite of COVID or because of it? Oh, definitely in spite of it. I mean, I, I think that there are in a, uh, several factors. Of course, when you're cooped up in the house and <laughs> you ain't been out in two or three months, uh, any excuse to go outside becomes a good one. And surely there were people who were who came out who otherwise probably would not. But it, but that still speaks to the fu the fundamental point here, right? They're cooped up in the house because of uh, a, a, a set, again, a, a, a medical crisis that was unavoidable, right? An epidemiological crisis that was un unexpected, but also because of a set of systemic uh, arrangements, a set of institutional arrangements, a set of policy decisions um, that consigned them to the house, or, or but also made the house not that safe. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's about um, people who, because they were stuck in a house, had more time and access to see Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor uh, and George Floyd and Christian Cooper and others. Um, it's about the fact that being stuck in the house uh, was a reminder of our inherent vulnerability. People waiting for that $1,200 check, people who were in a housing project where they couldn't, were sick, there was no, getting six feet of, of social distance was impossible. Mm -hmm. They were in those conditions. So when George Floyd gets killed, um, it's not disconnected from the, the pandemic, right? Instead, it's seen as yet another reminder of how vulnerable we are to various forms of violence, whether it's the violence of, of the state uh, through guns or through deprivation. Uh, all of those things are part of the, part of the equation. Mm. Now, um, I certainly knew people who wanted to go to the marches. I'm here in D.C., but we're scared because of COVID. Um, as a community leader yourself, how did you counsel people about whether or not to attend, or did that, did that ever even come up at all? You know, these young folk took to the streets before they before asking, right? They 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 asked questions later. You know, they asked for for uh, forgiveness rather than permission. Um, but you know, in terms of my own thinking, uh, it was important for me to be out there on the streets, but it was also important for me to be healthy and safe. For myself, for my 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 parents, you know, who are elderly, um, and and so I didn't go out there. Um, and if someone had asked me, I would of course told them wear masks, establish you know as much social distance as possible. But it's impossible in a, uh, in, a in a protest with tens of thousands of people for 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 there not to be some risk, you know. And 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 we see that um, over and over again. I saw a photographer yesterday who had on a, a full medical level mask. Uh, and said he never took it off and still got COVID. COVID masks reduce your chances a lot, but they're not foolproof. So I expected the, the protest around the country to yield some kind of danger. But watching those young people take that risk, so some did it because they're young and don't know they're, you know, they're, you know, they think they're they're, uh, they're they're bulletproof. But it was also a deeper thing for me, and I talk about this in the intro to the book, which is, you know, as a black person in America, you're wrestling with these questions: Do I go out and risk COVID to protest the state killing me, or do I stay home? Uh, and risk <laughs> death by not challenging the state's um, monopoly on violence against me. Um, and, and so it's not a question of do I die or do I resist death, it's just in what ways will I resist death today? And, and, and that for me speaks to the kind of um, the ignobility of, of, of the conundrums and the paradoxes that we have to confront as vulnerable people uh, in this country.
you know, as we said earlier, you know, this last summer, 2020, these were the largest demos in the history of the U.S. And, you know, from the streets and from some of these terrific theorists who became popularized through the protests came this idea of defunding or even abolishing the police. I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between those two demands, defund versus abolish, strategically and concretely? You know, it it really depends, you know, on, on there are people who call for defunding are calling for different reasons. Um, you know, I, let me begin with abolition. Um, I, I've been a prison abolitionist for a very long time, and our goal, the vision of, of prison abolition um, and, all, and police abolition, right? The goal is uh, to ultimately live in a world without police and prisons. That is the goal. And certainly to live in a world uh, where the prison is not the kind of uh, central uh, mechanism by which we resolve harm that's done, by which we uh, deal with the crises and contradictions of, of, Amer of American life or global life, whether it's poverty, mental illness, violence, et cetera. And um, part of what abolition requires is not just a call for what we don't want, that is we don't want prisons, for example, but it's a call for what we do want. It's an affirmative vision, um, a, a, a freedom dream about a world where people's needs are being met, where a uh, Walter Wallace Jr. Gets, gets the type of mental health supports he needs so that he's not standing in, in West Philadelphia holding a knife. So instead of having a conversation about whether the police should have tasered him instead of shooting him or whether police should have used more de-escalation instead of shooting Walter Wallace Jr. two weeks ago, almost three weeks ago, we could ask a, a more deep and, and fundamental and I think radical question, which is how do we create a world where a mother doesn't have to call armed police forces to mm -hmm. deal with mental illness? That's a different kind of question. And, and so the call for abolition is a radical one. It, it, it seems to some like an impossible one, but that's why we call for it, because uh, it's going to take impossible new worlds, impossible new freedom dreams to get us somewhere. Um, we can't reform our way out of this. We can't we can't call for, as, as I said uh, at the end of the book, we can't have nicer occupiers and warmer and fuzzier cages. Right. We need we need we need to reimagine the systems and structures themselves. That's not reform. That said, reform is not necessarily always the enemy. I, and and I, I, I heard Ruth Wilson Gilmore talk about this, the brilliant scholar and abolitionist. You know, this idea, we, we support reforms as long as they don't undermine our ability to radically uproot the system. In other words, some reforms are on their way to abolition. So for example, getting rid of bail, cash bail is a reform, but it's, a ref, but it's an abolitionist reform. It's a, it's a reform that, that supports our ability to, to um, dismantle the prison. Uh, ending privatized prisons at the federal level, as Obama did in, 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 uh, in 15 or 2016, excuse me. Um, that's, a, that's a reform, but it's something else. Defunding the police can be a, a, a reform that moves on the way to abolition. That is to say, if we say, look, we're going to take the, uh, the resources that we currently use uh, for law enforcement, and place them in institutions that can meet people's needs. Social workers, uh, drug counselors, uh, you know, a public safety force that's not armed to deal with the, the types of community-based disputes, violence interruption, uh, conflict resolution. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we can invest money in so that we don't need police in the same way. So the police aren't walking around in Ferguson as tax collectors, right? Locking people up for jaywalking just to keep the city budget going. 
Um, so they're, they're not trying to be mental health advocates when a Walter Wallace call, Jr. Uh, is tragically killed and unfairly killed. Um, these are the types of things that defunding can be. But for some, defunding has become the end and not the means. Rather than saying, so, so instead of saying, all right, we ultimately want to live in a world without police and prisons, and defunding is a step to get us there, some people have made defunding the end, and, and it becomes a liberal reform where they're saying, okay, well, let's take a little bit of money out of the police budget and put it someplace else. And, and these debates of a bu budget allocation still normalize uh, and cement, uh, further cement in our imaginations, our political imaginations, the idea that, that the criminal justice system as it, as it is and as it stands is acceptable. Now, you know, you had this debate explode on the streets all summer about defunding and abolition. Uh, people like, you know, Ms. Gilmore, who you mentioned, like her works, Angela Davis. I mean, it was it was an explosion of people debating these radical ideas in very open forums. But then this past election season, you don't have this debate about defunding the police. It wasn't represented in Biden versus Trump. Was that surprising to you or was it frustrating? To you? <laughs> critical debate that the summer raised just is completely absent from the presidential season? Uh, it was not at all surprising. Um, Joe Biden is a centrist liberal at best uh, who unfortunately or fortunately, however you look at it, has been very clear about what he wants, what he believes in, uh, what his goals are. I mean, he's been a little bit cagey on the fracking question, but in general, he's been very clear, like, look, I don't support a Green New Deal. I don't support Medicare for all. I think billionaires should exist. Uh, I don't want to defund the police. And so if that's your position, if that's your actual position, then no, I don't expect any advocacy uh, for this. In fact, part of Trump's strategy was to alienate Biden from the left, right? To get Biden to say he doesn't he doesn't have those positions, so that anyone in, who, who was sort of pro Bernie or left or further left um, doesn't have to uh, that, that we might feel compelled not to vote for Biden, might feel compelled to either go third party or stay home. I mean, that was part of the point. Is Trump understood that the gaps between them on those issues were almost non-existent. There are legitimate differences between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but not those particular issues. Um, and so, no, it didn't surprise me at all. I think what was frustrating was how um, aggressively uh, resistant Joe Biden was to the calls for 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 defund. I was like, this one was moments where you could probably not say a whole lot. Now, Joe Biden, of course, I mean, was was Joe Biden, of course, was was goaded by Trump, who kept saying that Joe that, that Biden does support uh, defunding the police. So then Biden had to say, no, I don't. I, I love the police. You know, rock on, police. And so I do understand the, the, the politics of it all, but there's still a way that Joe Biden uh, didn't thread the needle in a way that made it clear that he really understood what these activists on the ground were fighting for and fighting against. Uh, and that for me was profoundly frustrating because we had an opportunity in 2020 to have a different conversation. The young people on the ground began that conversation. They organized that conversation. They stimulated that conversation. They mainstreamed that conversation. Nobody was talking about in mainstream politics, you know, defunding and abolition, you know, five, 10 years ago, critical resistance was that the, the brilliant scholars like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and others were, but, but not everyday folk. And, and the fact that we moved that to the center of the conversation is extraordinary. Um, it, but the fact that the Democratic candidate couldn't advance that conversation or even legitimize that conversation or that desire is, is profoundly frustrating. And it speaks to the kind of work we need to do politically so that we can have a real left-wing movement here.
What do you think about the ways in the last week that slogan, defund the police, it's been in the news a great deal more because the Pelosi's of the world have been demonizing it as the reason why the Democrats did not win more seats in the House or the why they lost seats, why they didn't win the Senate. Like it's been held up by mainstream pundits as the reason why the Democrats didn't do better. So it's so that's where we've heard about it in the last week is the demonization of defund the police. What's what's been your reaction to that? That the Democrats are once again finding ways to snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, mm-hmm. It's like watching the LA Clippers, you know. Um, th- there's a way that um, the energy behind the Democratic Party comes from the Ilhan Omars, the Rashida Tlaibs, um, the AOCs, uh, the Jamal Bowmans now, the Ayanna, the Ayanna Presleys, etc. Uh, Corey Bush's, you know, there's a way that um, organizing on the ground, not just to defund police, but to call for uh, make other radical calls, or at least progressive calls around universal uh, health care, around Medicare for all, around um, the Green New Deal. This is the energy that got people to the polls. It wasn't just a rebuke of Donald Trump, although it was that. Um, it, it was it was so much it, it was so much more, and I, I think that. Um, Rather than running toward those values, there were there were House reps who made the decision to run away from what this new progressive wing of the Democratic Party was attempting to to push for and what the people on the ground were asking for. And so they're blaming their house, the loss of their House seats on the fact that um, we they didn't distinguish themselves from socialism enough or they didn't distinguish themselves from the radical left enough. But the truth is, uh, many of those candidates didn't stand next to those progressive values. I mean, AOC in, in her interview uh, that we saw last week and her response, I mean, one of the things she said is the five people who, who refused to allow me to campaign with them lost. Mm-hmm. Those, those who stood with me won. And, and AOC is not a, not a, not a, a silver bullet that can fix all this. I'm not saying, you know, but, but there is something to be said about those who made a, a conscious decision to hug the middle, as opposed to moving toward the left or the, you know, to the left of the party. Um, and then they paid a price for it, and now they're, they're blaming the very people who they ran from. Mm. We're just talking slogans. Speaking of slogans, I, I really love the part of the book where you call for all Black Lives Matter, ABLM, and not just Black Lives Matter. Why does that distinction matter, and why is it needed? Because we have a history of exclusion uh, in our social movements. Um, we have a history of violence, uh, both rhetorical and discursive violence, but also physical violence. I mean, I, I give you, I, let me give you a concrete example. In, in, when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, it was um, devastating to so many of us. And it was encouraging and exciting to see people in, on the ground in the streets of Minneapolis and all around Minnesota um, fighting for justice, demanding, making concrete demands. Um, a couple of days after those protests really hit their peak, a video came out on social media of a black trans woman in Minnesota being beaten, chased, harassed um, for no reason other than being black and trans and outside. It was sort of chilling to see on the one hand us fighting and screaming Black Lives Matter while her black life didn't. When I think about our campaigns for justice, very often the poster child and the animating figure for our resistance movements are, will be middle, not middle class, but they'll be, they'll be black, cisgendered, heterosexual men 
it's very easy to organize around a Mike Brown or Tamir Rice or, uh, or Trayvon Martin, but it's much harder uh, to organize around, just for example, Amiel Hall, a black trans woman who was killed in 2014, or to organize around a Renisha McBride in, uh, in Detroit. Uh, it becomes much harder to get the energy for Breonna Taylor that we get for George Floyd, although now we do have that energy and I'm very grateful for that energy. But my point is, you know, if when we talk about all black lives mattering, it means that we have to be committed um, to affirming every dimension of our community and not just subsume them all under the rubric of blackness, although they are all black, but to say that, you know, one of the things that makes you vulnerable in this country is not just being black, but being trans. Black trans women are particularly vulnerable. Uh, one of the things that makes you vulnerable is being Muslim. Like Muslims are particularly vulnerable in this country. And we've gone down a list of things that might consign us to a certain type of vulnerability and, and, and challenge that. So I'm encouraged by the fact that our freedom movements, our struggles over the last uh, 10 years are certainly more inclusive, they're more intersectional, they're more complex um, than they've ever been before. Uh, but we still got a long way to go if we want to really affirm all black lives. Mm. You mentioned this phrase earlier in the interview of freedom dreams. And you have this essay at the end of the book about freedom dreams. Now, you, you are an optimist in a period that you also acknowledge is one of racism, division, capitalist decay. What's the source of your optimism? <laughs> a lot of people ask that, you know, um, I think I'm optimistic, one, because um, I have a sense of history and I know that there's never been battles that we've committed to, fought for and struggled for that we wouldn't eventually win. But I also know that even when we take these losses, uh, our struggles, our work uh, prevent the losses from being bigger. In other words, the work we do every day stops people from dying. It saves lives. It, it, it makes people even if we don't, when we don't make the world better, sometimes we just stop it from being worse. And as a prisoner of hope, that's enough for me to keep fighting. But the optimism comes, or not optimism, but hope comes uh, from what I'm seeing on the ground. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at young people organizing. I'm looking at our movements become more intersectional. I'm looking at substantive victories. I mean, regardless of what people think about Joe Biden, and I think a lot about Joe Biden, you know, I have a lot of critiques of Joe Biden. The fact that we were able to organize and defeat Trump last week uh, or two weeks ago is is no small thing. The fact that we're having a um, a defunding conversation, uh, even if we lose the battle right now, the fact that it's even part of the conversation is a sign of victory. You know, Martin Luther King said, "Only when it is darkest can you see the stars," and it is so dark uh, in so many ways between the pandemic and the protests and the policing. But the reason why the book ends with possibility is because I see those stars. These organizers are stars. Young people are stars. Our radical politics is a star. The, out, the outcome of our resistance movements, even in the last year, stars. And so I, I've never been more confident uh, than I am right now that we'll be victorious. You've been a, a stalwart um, advocate for Palestinian liberation. Um, I'm someone who feels that so many things in our domestic politics circle back to the dehumanization of the Palestinian people, which, of course, we as a society not only ignore, but fund through the Israeli state. Do you see the issue of Palestinian liberation intersecting with everything we've discussed so far and the issues that you raise in your book? Absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book uh, is I raise this question around, you know, people always talk about the, the police exchange programs, and I think they're interesting to think about and to pay attention to. 
I think we have to be careful not to frame it as like, you know, Israel taught American police how to kill folk because uh, American police have been killing folks since day one. And, and, and state violence has existed long before um, the state of Israel was created. And honestly, when we look at the settler colonial project of America, uh, we can go back centuries, uh, even before um, the, the, the first kind of major Zionist wave. But I do think that there are some interesting parallels uh, that are sort of spotlighted by the fact that um, police are training Israeli, U.S. police are training Israeli police and Israeli police and military are training American police, right? And these exchange programs are, are quite fascinating because they remind us of sort of what kind of strategies are being used, right? We see a heightened authoritarianism in both countries. What Netanyahu um, has done uh, just in the last few years uh, from, from you know, of course, steady settlement expansion to uh, the, the, the nation state bill uh, to, um, you know, the kind of connections with Trump, which allow for the dismantling or the defunding of UNRWA. I mean, all of these things are extraordinarily cruel gestures that we see mirrored in the United States. Um, we also can see how we enter a security state. Where, where, where people are constructed as not as citizens, but as outsiders, right? I mean, there's a way that um, Palestinians are never seen as citizens, even those who live inside of the state of Israel, um, where they're always like that as, as skept with skepticism, with wariness, as outside threats. And there's a way that the Trump that the Trump era ushers in or reinforces a certain kind of security state where we see this on the ground with protesters, right? They're being treated, responded to with military, not with police. They're being, they're being treated like outside invaders rather than U.S. Uh, citizens. Um, there's a way that when we look at the type of weapons that are being used, when we look at the type of tactics that are being used, um, all of these things are um, incredibly uh, similar. And it's not just the United States, countries all around the world are using them. But I do think that it's important to think about that at the level of, of analysis. But the other thing, I think it's how we frame our struggles. Um, if we frame um, the Palestinian liberation struggle as a struggle, as a global struggle against racism, as an anti-racist struggle, uh, which I think we have to. Uh, I think we also see an extraordinary parallel in the United States where we also uh, are continuing to fight uh, a battle against white nationalism, against against white supremacy. Again, it's, it's an anti-racist struggle here as well. That's not to say we don't have a critique of capitalism in, in every place, but it's another parallel. Um, there are ways um, where the primary, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who we talked about earlier, you know, talks about racism as, you know, a, a set of institutional arrangements and structures that make people of a particular identity group uh, uh, vulnerable to premature death or susceptible to premature death. What makes you susceptible to premature death? Um, being black in the United States does that to you. Being Palestinian uh, does that to you. Um, and, and, and so as, as an analytic, I, th I think we can, we can see the parallel as well. And I'm, I'm incredibly, uh, again, encouraged by the growing solidarity um, across um, the world, really, uh, but be between, between Blacks um, in the United States uh, and Palestinians, not throughout the diaspora, but particularly in the West Bank and Gaza and inside of Israel. So I'm, 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 I'm encouraged by, by those connections at the same time that I see those parallels of struggle, of, of what it means to resist state violence, what it means to be vulnerable to premature death. Mm. And of course, the settler colonialism, uh, the- Of course. The tactics provides a mirror to understand each side um, with more clarity. Now, believe it or not, this is a sports and politics show. And 
not that we've discussed that at all, but I did want to ask you about the intervention of athletes in this struggle in 2020, particularly the strike wave that took place in August. And I was curious what your thoughts were after when league after league shut down after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. I was, um, I was um, excited to see the resistance efforts from NBA players to watch them organize and attempt to do something different than before. Mm-hmm. I think the most extraordinary thing I saw was the Milwaukee Bucks. You know, it's one thing to say, look, we're going to wear some jerseys. We're going to have Say Her Name or BLM on the back of a jersey, which I think matters. I think it absolutely matters. But Bucks were like, yo, we're not going to play this game. Being willing to walk away from this is something else. And, and to be clear, this wasn't a symbolic, like, work stoppage. They were going to forfeit the game. They didn't know that the Orlando Magic, in a playoff game, to be clear, they they weren't they weren't just like saying like you know we'll we'll postpone the game to draw some attention. They were saying no, we'll take this L, and nothing's guaranteed. Again, as we saw with the Clippers in Denver, I mean, you know, you could be a favorite and still lose a series. And if you cough up a game for for justice, you know, you know, there, there could be a, a material penalty for that. But they did it because they knew that something else had to be done. So when George Hill speaks out, when Giannis speaks out. Uh, later on, LeBron is, is questioning whether or not to even continue the season. I mean, these are powerful moves. These are powerful moves. Um, and I'm proud of them. I'm proud of the players in every league that did so. But I think the NBA really took the lead in this in a lot of ways that I, I found really, really beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, you're the biggest Philadelphia 76er fan I know. Um, and I'd love to ask you just a couple quick hit questions about the Sixers, if I could. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, the new unis. You've probably seen the black uniforms. Yes. Um, just your thoughts, pro or con on the black uniforms? Con, con, con. I'm, maybe it's because I'm, 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 I'm officially like old head status now. So, like, you know, if you're going to go, to me, the new uniforms are like the Iverson 2001 ones. So if you're going to go retro, to me, that's like the newest you should do. Uh, or the only one you should do if you but if you're going to really put out a, a dope jersey and a new redesign i, I want some retro doctor dr j you know 1983 energy we're trying to win a championship give me give me give me a jersey from when we won a championship give me filler on the front with wilt you know winning his first ring give me give me the 83 dr j jersey that that that, that uh, alan iverson also wore on the cover of slam magazine give me one of them I, this this new thing with all the design and it's it, it makes me dizzy. Now I did like the little uh, trust the process initials that are hidden inside of the jersey when you look really closely. I, I, I like that. I, I hope that's a sign that we're keeping Joel Embiid and it's a nice little dig and it's a it's a shout out to my man Sam Hinkie who I happen to have extraordinary respect for and think does not get enough respect. Why do you have respect for Sam Hinkie? <laughs> I love, because I, I I think he was on something. I mean. I think that tanking is, and I'm a season ticket holder, right? So I, I, I've given the Sixers way more money than I than, than I'd like to, to admit. I sat there for the ten the ten win season. I've taken the biggest L both as a fan and as someone who, who who invested materially in the team, and I was okay with it because I knew that we would turn around and get someone good. Now, my issue with um, the Sixers was not the tanking. It was the choices. You know, we left Giannis on the table. We left uh, 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 Donovan Mitchell on the table. We left Porzingis on the table. We left, uh, I mean, we're going down the list of people we left on the table. And so for me, 
Um, the issue wasn't the tanking. I thought the tanking was great. And I think Hanky had the right vision of the kind of players he wanted, even when he drafted Michael Carter-Williams. And then after a year, he's like, yeah, he's, he's rookie of the year, but he's not the guy. And we traded him and got, brought two more guys in. Uh, some of it is bad luck. I mean, we, you know, Embiid was was beset by injuries for, for for like two years before he played. You know, two or three years before he played. You know, Ben Simmons didn't play his whole first year. You know, so there are ways that I think this team could have looked very different, just with a, with, with some things that broke differently. But I think people act like Sam Hinky just said, "Hey guys, let's lose a lot, get a high draft pick, and then pick the first guy on the board." I mean, if that were the strategy, I'd say, "Well, yeah, anybody can do that." And I agree that there's ways to rebuild a team without tanking completely we saw that with boston we saw that with um with milwaukee but i think hinky had a, also an understanding of, of 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 advanced of um what do you call it of stats like not stats, but what do they call it uh metrics so, yeah thank you you know you, you using the, in baseball we call it sabermetrics right and, and the kind of money ball approach but there's a way that um i i think that you need those stat guys but you also need a basketball eye as well, and 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 I think that if the Sixers made one mistake, it was that they were so committed to tanking that they didn't have guys on the team that were developing young guys. So, for example, you can have a, a shit team, but you also need an old head on a team that can tell guys how to be how to be a professional, how to prepare for the game, when to come home to bed, you know, on Saturday night. And those are things that you can't learn without having a pro and an old pro there uh, to help, you know, to to get you there. And and, and, I, and so, if I had a critique, it would be of that. Um, but in, and it took a while. It wasn't until Elton Brand came and a couple other guys that, as a player, I mean, at the end of his career, that, that really got us there. So that would be my critique in general. But overall, um, I'm super excited about where the Sixers are. I, I think it, it was time to get rid of Hinky. You know, it was time, obviously, to get rid of the Colangelos. Uh, it's time to get rid of Brett Brown, um, although I love Brett. Um, and so now it's time to, to usher in a new era. And, and I think Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers are the perfect combination to get us where we want to be. Uh, the big question for 76ers fans is Ben Simmons. Keep or say goodbye? Oh, that, that's not a yay or nay question, bro. Like, you know, Ben is a phenomenal talent who can do things that very few players I've ever seen can do. It, it, you know, he's almost seven feet tall. He's athletic. He's a ball handler. He's got great court vision. I'm not sure he's a point guard. Just because, just because you can ball hand, be a good ball handler just because you can make plays, doesn't mean that you should be a, a point guard. And the reason I say that is because he doesn't, until he learns to shoot, it's so easy to go under on, 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 on screens for him. Um, there's just no reason to fight on top of a screen for, for a guy who, can, who who not only can't shoot, but won't shoot. Um, there are ways that even when he when he penetrates, he, he gets into the paint and he doesn't, he just doesn't put the ball up. You know, just a nice floater, a nice runner, you know, an 18 footer. Um, even just making himself a threat to shoot the ball, even if he were shooting at 25% from three, would, would, would keep defenders honest and make his playmaking better. So so there's a way that I understand why people are frustrated with Ben, but you got a guy who has not taken 10, 10 legitimate threes in his whole career, a guy who who hasn't taken 20 legitimate 18-footers in his whole career, not buzzer beater, you know, but real legitimate jump shots, who's still able to give you nearly a triple-double. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, but 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 here's the other part, man. I, my experience as, as a basketball observer is that people rarely learn how to shoot. You know, there's, there's all these myths that people learn how to shoot good shooters get better, mediocre shooters can become solid, and everybody says, yeah, what about Michael Jordan? Oh, what about Jason Kidd? Oh, what about... And you can name the three or four people in NBA history who are also, like, some of the greatest players in human history to play who have who have made those strides, but the average, most people who can't shoot when they start their career, in their careers, not being able to shoot. And, and I don't think that... Uh, so, when, with Ben, to me, it's the question is, does he complement 
Joel Embiid, and can we put pieces around and make it work? Under Brett Brown, we couldn't. We, we just couldn't. But that doesn't mean it's not doable. So for me, until I see him with Doc Rivers, until I see him with some, with some people who can who can take him off the ball um, and, and move him to the four, where I think he actually could be much more effective with these interesting mismatches, um, until I see people do more than just put him in the dunker spot or um, – you know, or, or or have him or have him bury in the corner when when he's not a threat at all. Until I see those things, um, until I see more than dribble handoffs to JJ Redick, <laughs> you know, um, I'm not I'm not ready to get rid of him. I know it's a long way of not answering your question. Um, I, I I love Ben and Joel. I'm not sure they're a natural fit, but I, but I'm also I also believe they could be a fit with the right coaching and with the right pieces. Wow, well, well Doc Rivers, that's that's really the test in front of him right now. Um, yeah. just your your all time 76er, Doctor J. Iverson or other? Oh, you're going to hate my answer. Uh, well, you're not going to hate my answer, but my answer is Charles Barkley. Interesting. Okay, I, I don't hate that answer. You know, part of it is generational. I mean, I, Alan Iverson had a greater career than Barkley did as a sixer. Mm-hmm. He took us to the finals. He won an MVP here. Barkley won it the year he left here. Um, they both are, are quintessentially Philly players. Um, they work hard. They don't complain much. You know, they get arrested. You know, they 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 they, they kind of do the thing. You know, I, I, I'll say this: No, Charles Barkley is my favorite Sixers player. Charles Barkley is my favorite Sixers player. Um, I grew up watching it. I had the I had the Charles Barkley Sixers chalk line jacket. You know, I, I you know I loved the, the round mound of rebound. I played with the Sixers on the NBA Live '95 and Bulls versus Lakers. I mean, I, I was I was a Barkley Barkley fan even when everyone was a Jordan fan. So that's what I say. I think if there's a legitimate argument that the greatest Sixer um, is, is Dr. J, and, and it's because Dr. J won the ring. He's still, the, you know, so much of what everyone else wanted to be. He he did it with dignity and class, um, and he's he's a, he's an iconic figure. Um, I, I think Wilt doesn't get enough love, but I, I think Dr. J is the greatest Sixer just because of his accomplishments. Um, Barkley is my favorite. Mm. And last question for you: You you go to a lot of games, you said, season ticket holder. What's your best moment ever watching live basketball? Oh, there's a couple. Um, my two favorite. Uh, one is when we were, we were, we were really bad uh, and the ref caught a tech on the team because of me heckling. Ah. And then they issued me like a, uh, a, um, a warning. I remember Doug Collins was coaching, and 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 uh, so so they give the tech for me talking shit because I was I was cursing and all this shit. And back then, like you could curse at the games. Some cities, like when you're in Indiana, the rest like, I've I've been kicked out of games. The Pacers tried to kick me out for cursing because apparently in Indiana you can't curse on at courtside, but but in Philly you can a little bit. But because they thought I was a, I, I don't know what they. It's also a race thing because it was like I was courtside. I was young. I was a little bit younger. I was black. They thought I was like a player. I guess on an injury <laughs> reserve, sitting in the seats. So. So, so so they give us the tech, and then Doug Collins says, I don't know that guy. What the fuck are we getting a tech for? Um, and then at that point, the ref was too embarrassed to rescind the tech. Um, and uh, I won't say who the ref was, but we've been cool ever since. And uh, Doug Collins never liked me again. But the players got a kick out of it. We'd only won like 10, I think 10 or 15 games that year. So no one, it wasn't like I cost them the game. They ended up losing to the cat, a really bad Cavs team. LeBron was in Miami. They lost to a really bad Cavs team by four, like 30. So it wasn't like... They lost by one. My other favorite moment is when Andre Iguodala hits the uh, the free throws um, to put the Sixers not only to, to, to for the Sixers to win a playoff game, uh, to win um, to, to not only win a playoff game but to to beat the, the we were the number eight seed. We were playing Chicago and we beat um, Chicago to to upset them and take knock them out 
of the first round uh, on Andre Iguodala free throw. So it was a great moment because we won. It was a great moment because Iguodala was hated in Philly unfairly. He was a great player, a, a true professional. We didn't like it. wasn't that we didn't like him. We didn't like his contract at the time. They thought he was over. He shouldn't have been the, paid so much to not be a you know a superstar. Um, but he and he also isn't a great free throw shooter. So he made the free throws. We won the game. We went to the second round of playoffs, and it felt like we were really headed somewhere and headed there quickly. I won't mention that you know Derrick Rose got injured, and that's the only reason we won the round and, and upset them. That's 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 beside the point. Um, and, and so um, those are my two favorite. Of course, I ran on the court and acted ridiculous, and security came and got me. And but you know that was all good. That was all part of the fun. Like, those are good old days when you could just like run, you know run on the court and, and and be ridiculous. And you know we didn't win enough to, to, for it to matter. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's a different time now. It's become a different time, but it was it was fun, man. We got so many more great moments coming. I, I think the Sixers in the next five years are going to go to at least one NBA Finals. I really do believe that. Mark it down, everybody. Uh, it was said by Mark Lamont Hill. Um, and then this is a question I ask everybody I interview. I always ask what music they're listening to these days. Uh, what's what's on their playlist? What, what is is there anything that you're grooving to right now that you want to share with us? Well, can I can I, I'll say this. I, I'm I'm not listening to Ice Cube. No. Uh, <laughs> um, what am I listening to, man? That's a good question. I'm, I was I actually just picked up my iPhone on a look. Uh, I, I've just been so busy. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of old stuff. I've been replaying uh, the Colored Section uh, by Donny. I, I I listened to uh, you know the new uh, some some new music from her. Um, I actually was listening to Good Trouble, uh, 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 Stephen Jackson's, uh, you know, former NBA player, his his uh, album he put out. Um, Detroit Two by Big Sean is really good. Streams of Thought Volume Three by um, by uh, Black Thought is fire. That I would say those are the things that I've been listening to the most. Wow, right on. And you know, you, you do um, a terrific podcast yourself. Uh, that I want to just give a shout out and props to. When I've listened to it, I've gotten a lot out of it. Um, coffee and books, and I want to. Oh, yeah. I really want to recommend that to folks out there. Oh, thank you, y'all. Everybody, yeah. Coffee and books is my podcast. I'm I'm, I'm so proud of it. Um, it's a book podcast. You know, I interview authors. We talk about you know great books, but we also talk about the process of writing, the journey of writing. You know, so you get there. You, you'll. It's a book interview. It's about the book, but it's also about so much more about writing and all kinds of stuff, man. I'm I'm super proud of it. We nerd out about like legendary books like Autobiography, Malcolm X, or Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And we really run the gamut, and um, it's it's been a lot of fun doing it. And yeah, they can check it out wherever podcasts, wherever, wherever they get their podcasts. Right on. Well, let me just say it one last time. The book is called We Still Here: Pandemic Policing, Protest, and Possibility. It's a remarkable volume about the last six months of our lives. His name is Mark Lamont Hill. Mark, you've been so generous with your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Anything for you, brother. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. That was Mark Lamont Hill, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word about the nation's festival of ideas coming up this week. You've got to sign up for this. We are having a festival of ideas taking place virtually from November 18th to the 21st. Four days of wide-ranging conversations briefing sessions, and interviews in the wake of the most critical election of our lives. It will be featuring Senator Bernie Sanders, Naomi Klein, Michael Bennett, who I will be interviewing, Alicia Garza, and many more. Tickets are on sale at thenation.com slash nationfestival. Check it out. And now back to the show.
And now I've got some choice words about the Rooney Rule. Okay, look, the Rooney Rule has always been a case study in the NFL telling on itself. In a league that's made up of roughly 75% black Americans, this multi-billion dollar operation has needed to have a special rule just to get its almost entirely all-white franchise owners to interview candidates of color for head coaching positions. Shahid Khan of the Jacksonville Jaguars is the only majority NFL owner who is not white, but given that the Jaguars are the Jaguars, this almost doesn't count. Without the Rooney Rule, eminently qualified coaches of color would not even get into the room. Yet even with the Rooney Rule, we have not seen measurable progress. It's led to more interviews, but they come across like an impatient billionaire checking a box on a to-do list rather than a serious evaluation. Currently, there are only three full-time black head coaches in the league. Pittsburgh's Mike Tomlin, Miami's Brian Flores, and the Los Angeles Chargers' Anthony Lynn, with Romeo Crennel of the Houston Texans currently playing that role in an interim capacity. Ron Rivera, who is of Mexican and Puerto Rican descent, coaches the Washington football team. These numbers are similar to when the Rooney Rule was first initiated two decades ago. So no progress. There are also only two black general managers further compounding the problem. Despite a crew of top flight assistants, black coaches do not get the opportunities at the big job. And it's a stain on a league that is still reckoning with how to look more woke in the aftermath of the summer's protests following the police murder of George Floyd. Yet while the league's commissioner, Roger Goodell, has issued a flurry of statements about the NFL's commitment to fighting racism, and even stated his regrets towards the way they handled exiled quarterback Colin Kaepernick, we have not seen change where it matters most. Slogans written on a field are a thin gruel compared to actually hiring the qualified. Instead, we have a chronic system of nepotism that rewards the sons of established coaches at the expense of not only qualified candidates, but also teams actually winning games. How else to explain the firing of Jim Caldwell of the Detroit Lions because of management and impatience over a 9-7 and seven record when his replacement, Matt Patricia, gets years to prove his ineptitude with the mere thought of going 9-7 and seven a pipe dream? How else to explain why Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator for the high-powered Kansas City Chiefs, is still toiling as an assistant? It's an embarrassment. The latest effort to confront this is a new proposal approved by the franchise owners during the past week. In this tinkering with the Rooney Rule, teams would be compensated with draft picks if a quote-unquote minority assistant coach is hired by another team. Teams could receive two third-round draft picks should they lose one of these assistant hires. The owners think that this could finally be the step that encourages the building of a pipeline of assistants and potential head coaching hires. The problem, however, with this position is that the very same people who are putting forward this proposal are the same people who aren't doing the hiring. There already are qualified assistants who aren't getting hired, so why would this new incentivized scenario necessarily change anything? Far more likely is that it'll result in more assistant coaches of color, which is of course a positive, but no real change in terms of who gets the top jobs. The rub is that the NFL and Roger Goodell are still looking at this like they have a hiring problem or a personnel problem, when the reality is that they have a racism problem. 
that is not going to end with changes to the rules. It will end when players are more vocal about the absence of opportunities available to them upon retirement. It will end when fans rebel at inferior white coaches keeping their teams consigned to mediocrity. It will end, hopefully, with this generation of owners who see whiteness as an unspoken part of what makes a successful head coach. In other words, struggle will end the racist hiring practices, not new rules written by the same people who will inevitably flout them. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we just call Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Awards Stand up. got to go to Kim Ng. She is the first woman and the first Asian American to become a Major League Baseball general manager. She's also the first female general manager in any of the major North American men's sports leagues. Congratulations not just to Kim Ng, but also to the Miami Marlins, who have hired somebody who is eminently qualified. Kim Ng was the youngest assistant general manager in Major League Baseball at age 29 when she was hired by the Yankees. She's 51 years old now. That means it took 22 years for her to land the top spot. She was qualified for this job. 15 years ago, but it took 22 years. She never stopped fighting. Kim Ang, general manager, Miami Marlins. This is huge. Massive shout out to Derek Jeter. I can't believe I'm even saying that uh, for the hire. Uh, massive shout out to Kim Ang. And you know what? Massive shout out to actually the fans of the Miami Marlins because you're getting one hell of a general manager. I mean, this resume is beyond sparkling. So, just Stand Up Award goes to Kim Ng. Stand up! The Just Sit Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down. Sit your ass down! Goes to the former Auburn head coach. It's so interesting because Kim Ng, you have this example of somebody who's clearly had to work twice as hard for a job she should have gotten years ago. And the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to almost the epitome of white mediocrity of the idea of being so stupid, yet being able to fail upwards despite having no qualifications. And yes, I'm talking about Tommy Tuberville, former Auburn coach, now a senator from Alabama, and an idiot. Tommy Tuberville, Tuberville, he uh, doesn't know the three branches of government in an interview. He said the three branches of government were the executive, the House, and the Senate. He thinks World War II was fought to fight socialism. That's what he thinks World War II was. It was the West against socialism. And he was a shitty coach, although that has nothing to do with it. The people of Alabama had the chance to uh, reelect Doug Jones, who was a civil rights hero who prosecuted the Klan. And instead they chose somebody who literally does not know his ass from his elbow. Tommy Tuberville. Tuberville. 
whatever. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. Uh, if you like the show, please go to Apple, go to wherever, uh, you know, write in a little review, give it a nice mark. It makes a huge difference to the various algorithms that affect this free product. Uh, for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Please wear a mask. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.